Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. I am clean morally and physically. I go to my church and contribute my share. I keep my body and mind clean. And yet, When I go out there to play baseball, it is not unusual to hear some fan cry out, Hit the dirty n***. That hurts, for I have no recourse. I am getting paid, I suppose, to take that. But why should fans become personal? If I act the part of a gentleman, am I not entitled to a little respect? Consider the resume of one John Wesley Donaldson known in his lifetime as the greatest colored baseball player of all time. Played from 1908 to 1941, appearing in approximately 2,500 ballgames in 725 cities and towns in Canada and the United States. 413 wins against 163 losses in 694 appearances for a 71.7% winning percentage. 638 complete games pitched, 5,091 total strikeouts, 14 no-hitters, and two perfect games, twice struck out 30 or more batters in a single game, in addition to pitching, played center field for the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro National League, where he batted a very respectable 303 over five seasons there, named as a member of all-time Negro baseball slash Negro league teams in 10 consecutive decades, and after retirement from playing, became the first African-American scout in Major League Baseball, where he played a part in bringing Willie Mays and Ernie Banks to the Major Leagues. Now that's a pretty impressive resume. So how come you've never heard of John Donaldson before? My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats, sports history as told through its superstars. During the close of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, small towns across the United States commonly pitted their local baseball teams against teams from other nearby communities. Deep rivalries were created among these teams and towns. These rivalries were not spawned by greed for prize money, but by something even more basic, regional bragging rights. Typical of these town ball rivalries were two Iowa communities, Fort Dodge and Lehigh. Fort Dodge called itself a baseball town. Every other Sunday, fans in this rural Iowa community plunked down two bits to see their team match skills with teams from nearby towns or the occasional barnstorming club. Several miles away lay Lehigh, a grittier agricultural and coal mining town. Every year, 
Lehigh longed to beat Fort Dodge in their annual baseball grudge match. The neighboring town, not surprisingly, refused to cooperate. In September 1912, things would change in Lehigh's favor. Rusty Whipple, one of the directors of the Lehigh Ball Club, cooked up an ingenious plan for winning the big game. Not only would Whipple's scheme give Lehigh bragging rights over its rival, Whipple believed it would place the terminally in the red Lehigh Baseball Club back in the black. Fittingly, the money would come from Lehigh's own rivals. With the onset of autumn, some crops had been harvested and sold. Deep-pocketed Fort Dodge backers, flush with the extra cash, were eager to bet on the big game. Whipple began to put his plan in motion. Whipple arranged the purchase of 200 train tickets to transport Lehigh fans to Fort Dodge for the big fall matchup. Whipple, however, saved one ticket for a player who would ensure a victory for Lehigh, a win that would make Fort Dodge spend the entire winter contemplating its defeat. Whipple gave the ticket to a 21-year-old African-American pitcher from Missouri named John Wesley Donaldson. Whipple, however, didn't give the ticket to Donaldson because he was young or because he was an African-American. The wisdom of Whipple's $75 investment, the amount Donaldson sought for his services, depended solely on Donaldson's skill on the mound, and he was very skilled. Fans of baseball, particularly those into baseball history, like to talk about the eternal quality of baseball, about how the basics never change. Three strikes and you're out. Three outs and the inning's over. Nine innings and the game is over. Unless the score has died, these basics have stayed the same, and seemingly forever will. Which, we may believe, gives us a chance to compare players of different eras. In turn, great for a show like Truly the Goats. And they may be right. But professional baseball, prior to World War II? That's a whole different story. Literally. For those living in, say, Butte, Montana, Santa Fe, New Mexico, or... St. Petersburg, Florida, Major League Baseball before 1950 may as well have been a world away. Sure, baseball on the radio was a boon to fans living west of the Mississippi or south of the Mason-Dixon line, but if you wanted to see a game, you had to go to the local ballpark, where regional rivalries blossomed and traveling teams brought high-level baseball to you. Before the minor league system was fully put into place in the U.S., associations of professional ball clubs met the baseball-crazy country's need for top-level baseball. Thus, were fans in the desert southwest more interested day-to-day in the goings-on of the Texas League? In the south, fans followed the Southern League. In California, Oregon, Washington, the Pacific Coast League, first home of the Namagio brothers. And then, there were the Negro Leagues. Since the beginning of organized American baseball, Jim Crow laws and Major League Baseball's infamous unwritten rule kept African-American players off of Major League Baseball ball fields. And so GOAT players never got to test their mettle against the legends of pre-war baseball. Players like Oscar Charlton to Buck O'Neill and Buck Leonard, not to mention Josh Gibson, estimated to have hit 800 home runs. And of course, Satchel Paige, who debuted for the Cleveland Indians in 1948 at the age of 41, unless he was 48 or 45. The Negro Leagues represent sort of parallel universe reflecting the essentially apartheid system in America of quote-unquote, separate but equal. The top-level Negro Leagues were also forced to work on a different economic model, one that entailed scheduling home games after the white teams had reserved their dates. Negro League teams were also compelled to continue sending players out on, or rather, 
keeping them out on barnstorming tours to what we today call small markets. In many ways, barnstorming baseball was well more of a meritocracy than the big leagues. In nearly all areas of the country, even in towns which were literally home to 100% white populations, was a living legend like John Donaldson welcomed, the local newspapers touting his accomplishments on the diamond in advance of his appearance. As it turns out, local team owners, managers, and fans felt that the club should do anything, even desegregate, to win ballgames. Of course, the visiting colored team and our players were not always appreciated for the quality of their play, particularly if they were dominating the home team, which they did often enough. We're living in a time of reassessing American history, particularly with regard to racial and economic inequality. When the people's history of American baseball is written, we can expect to see a more detailed examination of the integration of Major League Baseball, as well as more tribute to the pioneers of the game who were breaking barriers decades before Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey. Pioneers like John Donaldson. Whipple's plan called for Donaldson to remain on the train parked less than 50 yards from the field until the umpire called out his name. While Donaldson waited... The local gamblers circulated through the stands taking bets. Umpire Harry Dressinger, doubling as public address announcer, proclaimed the starting lineups for both teams, beginning with Fort Dodge. When the raucous crowd had ceased cheering its hometown heroes, the umpire ran through the first state players for Lehigh. As he rattled off the names, the gamblers could be heard shouting out wagers. Finally, Dressinger declared, In the box for Lehigh! John Donaldson. The Lehigh faithful screamed at the top of their lungs as Donaldson stepped from the train and jogged to the hill in a Lehigh uniform. It didn't take long for Donaldson to take command. He struck out the first eight batters without the ball ever touching a bat. Finally, the ninth Fort Dodge batter managed a foul tip. The home fans shrieked with excitement pounding the grandstand until it shook. They found him, they found him. Their taunts were short-lived, however, as Donaldson flashed his toothsome smile, struck out his ninth victim, and continued to fan 14 of the first 15 batters sent to the plate. Frustrated and angry, many of the Fort Dodge fans lashed out at Donaldson with disgusting slurs and invective. The atmosphere was getting ugly and almost beyond control. The boiling point came when the Fort Dodge catcher struck out on three pitches and took offense at Donaldson's smile, charging the mound with his bat held high. Ultimately, cooler heads prevailed and order was re-established. The catcher, whose behavior was universally condemned by both Lehigh and Fort Dodge fans, was physically removed from the field. Whipple's plan had worked like clockwork. Through his complete game shutout with 18 strikeouts, Donaldson had almost single-handedly erased the red ink from the accounts of the Lehigh Club. His name became a local legend as fans for more than two generations would recount the day John Donaldson appeared from a railway car and brought Lehigh a glorious victory over Fort Dodge. I've gotten some fantastic suggestions for future True of the Goats episodes, and you'll be hearing them in Season 2, but none of them quite so compelling as the pitch of Peter Gordon for the pre-war baseball superstar John Donaldson. 
Peter is the director of the Donaldson Network, a nonprofit dedicated to research of and publicity for the legacy of John Wesley Donaldson. Peter has also written numerous articles on Donaldson and baseball in the Midwest, including One Diamond at a Time, which is excerpted throughout this episode. Pete Gordon, founder of the Donaldson Network, welcome to Truly the Goats. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Tell us something about the challenges of doing research on John Donaldson. I mean, I can say that just in prepping for this thing, very often, uh, just going through newspaper archives, I would find John Donaldson's team is coming to town, but then no reportage on the actual game itself. How do you get your research done? Well, here's what we uh, here here was the problem. We're coming into a the digital age, right? where you can Google on your cell phone, anybody, uh, you could uh, you could find out in less than 30 seconds, I could challenge you. You could find out what Lou Gehrig did in August of 1925 on a Thursday, right? And you could see what he did in the batter's box. That was never available for Negro League baseball players. And John Donaldson and all Negro League players uh, – needed that ability for not legitimacy, but for people to be able to go look for these things. Uh, that was never available. And so what the Donaldson Network set out to do from the very beginning with the web page and, uh, and many other uh, digital ways to do that uh, so that you could search and what would come up would be John Donaldson. You could see what he did. Um, and then you could decide for yourself if that was important or not. Um, we just put it up on that web page. But in order, in terms of how do we do that research, that was the goal was to get as much of the stuff up there as you could get so that people could see that he was a, a, a significant black baseball player for uh, his whole entire career. Um, and so it, that was the, that was really the logic behind it was to get it. So you could do what you could do for Lou Gehrig and you could see for yourself, uh, on a day in and day out basis, what John Donaldson had done, and what ended up happening as the years went on, the information continued to uh, stockpile. Right, we started getting hundreds of games, thousands of games. Uh, we know right now that he played in over 725 cities in the United States and Canada. I mean, that's a lot of information from all over the place. Uh, how did we get, and how did we start compiling that? Well. One of the reasons John Donaldson's legacy is as obscure as it has been was all those newspapers were buried in individual uh, newspaper repositories, one kind or another, if it was a library or a hometown newspaper office or all these different sources of information. What we wanted to do was build a network of people who could mine those things. I could, I could send a message to somebody in the in middle of Nebraska where we know John Donaldson was and I could say, can you go down to your newspaper office and look in August, August 14th, 1914, John Donaldson was in your town. Can you send in, can you go down there and take a photocopy or snap it on your cell phone now uh, and mail those to me or email those to me? Or let's start collecting these things. Something a historian could not do in 1960. Um, uh, if you went to, about trying to get John Donaldson's uh, even into the 1990s, um, in 2000s, right? You could barely do that before. Uh, so a historian would have to have gone to all these places and picked them up one at a time and then realized uh, what, a, what a monumentous job that would have been. Well, the Internet has changed that, and 
we're able to communicate with people and we're able to, I'm not telling you to go to, uh, you know, go look through a whole year of newspapers. I'm telling you to go to a specific section, specific date. Um, so you said something about how a lot, even what you've been able to look up um, through digital archives, you, you find John Dallas going to be there in your town, right? This is something, this is something I call publisher's bias, right? Many newspapers from that time period, almost all of them were weeklies, right? And John Donaldson would come to town and they'd, come, uh, they'd be a big advertising for the games. Uh, and then they'd publish on Thursdays, right? And so the game on Sunday was five days ago. So you get very limited blurbs at that time because it's not really, it's kind of old news. Um, and so a lot of times that's what happened. And so theoretically, uh, a seventh or two sevenths of uh, John Donaldson's career is never reported on because it's old news. Um, it's a whole week old. And so you look for secondary sources for things like that. And you look for other newspapers from around um, that would collaborate, corroborate this information. So that's what we've been doing. And so sometimes the, uh, so to speak, the limb of the tree gets really long. And you're trying to figure out where the next place they're going to report on him is. But what is relevatory in uh, today is they reported on him. Um, for years and years and years, historians went around thinking that, well, they didn't report on African-Americans at all. Um, that's just not true. Uh, and we disproved that over the years to, to the tune of somewhere around 8,000 newspaper articles we found on him so far. Uh, and so it's important to understand that that's been a huge collecting process, but we've also been able to uh, really change the way history is looked at. And, and that's what's important for what I'm doing is John Donaldson is important um, and as important as any of the Hall of Famers. Uh, he needs to be talked about because of how significant he was in his time period. The 1915 season saw Donaldson perform his greatest feat. In May, he reportedly threw 30 consecutive no-hit innings. As a result of this incredible accomplishment, Donaldson's deeds spread from coast to coast through the country's primitive newspaper wire services. One such article, entitled Great Pitchers Barred from Majors, outlined Donaldson's career as well as those of Mendez and Chicago's Frank Wickware. Although this notoriety bestowed on African-American athletes marked a change in tone within the color line, it did not result in a change in policy. According to one observer, the color line so tightly drawn around Major League Baseball had barred from Major League fields three of the greatest pitchers the game has ever produced. Chicago newspapers proclaimed Donaldson superior to any pitcher within the White Sox or Cubs Major League organizations, and that Color phobia was the only thing keeping him out. Hall of Fame manager John McGraw of the New York Giants wished he could make use of Donaldson's tremendous talent and pitching skills. He said, If Donaldson were a white man, or if the unwritten law of baseball didn't bar Negroes from the major leagues, I would give $50,000 for him and think I was getting a bargain. One of the things that baseball history doesn't really tell us is about the integration of smaller teams in base during the 
playing career of someone like John Donaldson. Were Donaldson's desegregated teams typical of the time? Well, he's there's a trailblazing sort of nature to everything he's doing. Uh, his his first team was called the All Nations Team, um, one of his first teams, and uh, um, that team had several different nationalities uh, represented on their team, uh, and that was an important part of where he was traveling. You got to understand the uh, history of the Midwest. Um, many of these people at that time period were first generation. I mean. There was a draw for there are whole communities in the state of Minnesota that were founded by, um, you know, immigrants from Germany or or Eastern Europe or I mean, there's places that you could have um, first generation immigrants, um, which would be a advertising draw in these towns to have somebody who said was said to be their countrymen coming to see that people would just turn out to watch uh, because of that. Uh, they wanted any sort of tie to um, their homeland. And that's an important part of it. So at that time, um, in terms of integrated teams or not, John Donaldson was often the uh, single, solitary, uh, only African-American person on his team, the only person who was of color in the whole lineup. Uh, many, um, uh, many, many years that he played, he was the only person there uh, who was, the, the sole African-American representation. So it's important to understand that he was able to navigate an incredibly difficult time in our nation's history for African-Americans, especially uh, trying to travel around. I mean, it's just an impossible time uh, in our nation's history to, uh, to be traveling in the United States. It's a tough time. Jim Crow laws are in effect everywhere. Uh, he's, uh, He's challenged by that, and he perseveres through all that to the tune of almost, uh, several hundred towns he goes to, and he's famous. And what people have a hard time understanding today is, well, uh, that just wasn't happening at that time. Um, John Donaldson was a tr true trailblazer in almost everywhere he went. Uh, he was a, a famous African-American person, which was a very a rarity at that time. When Rube Foster formed the Negro National League in 1920, black baseball entered its golden age. The lone white owner of a franchise in the newly organized league, Wilkinson gathered the core players from the ranks of his old All-Nations team to form his new Kansas City Monarchs. Included among the former All-Nations players were Donaldson and Mendez. Donaldson hoped to assume a primary role in the organization as the club's manager but Wilkinson passed over him, selecting Mendez. Donaldson became the everyday center fielder, where his athletic ability allowed him to hit over 300. In 1920, the Negro National League was formed, and in typical fashion, like the NFL did a similar thing, is you just basically take the best regional teams knit them together to form a sort of super league. So Donaldson's Kansas City All-Nations becomes the Monarchs. But instead of pitching those first couple of years, he, he becomes an outfielder? What's the story here? Well, John Donaldson's a famous drawing card name. By the time the Negro National League, which didn't just sprout up in 1920, they were trying to seed that thing for a couple of years beforehand, at least. And most leagues up to that time, all leagues up to that time, didn't survive. 
Um, so I'm not sure there was a huge expectation that the Negro National League would become what it did, which we celebrate this year, the 100th anniversary of um, the centennial year. And John Donaldson's on the all-century team, rightly so. Um, so as the late 19-teens and you have the flu pandemic in 1918 and you have World War I and you have all these sort of societal things that are going on. Uh, the Negro National League forms, uh, and John Donaldson is asked, what should we name the Kansas City franchise? And he says, Kansas City Monarchs. And that name sticks. Uh, so they formed that, uh, the original Kansas City Monarchs team of 1920 around John Donaldson's baseball playing ability. There wasn't this, uh, in, particularly in Barnstorming baseball, John Donaldson would pitch one day, uh, play, and, and when, uh, when the next day he played center field, he'd play every day of the week. Um, and so he, it was just a matter of time until he was going to pitch again. So John Donaldson was an all-around ball player. He played uh, center field mostly, um, the captain of the outfield. Um, he was a great all-around player. He had tremendous speed. He was a five-tool guy, what they say now. Uh, he had tremendous speed. Uh, he uh, hit the ball well. So by the time 1920 comes around, he's 29 years old. He has spent the last 10 years uh, throwing upwards over 450 innings a year. Uh, he's playing a lot of baseball. 92% of the games that he starts as a pitcher, he finishes. So it's nine-inning game, but just him. There wasn't going to be anybody coming out of a bullpen. There was this thing. Um, barnstorming teams of that time carried 12 players um, and injuries as they are, you know, a lot of times you had nine guys to play. Um, that's the way it was. One more guy on the uh, train car or one more guy in the bus uh, took away from everybody's bottom line. So it was always kind of a, uh, a balancing act of how to make money. Um, so if you carried somebody who didn't play, that was going to cost you more money. And so that was a, a, a part of that. But the, the, the thing to understand is John Donaldson was used where his team could, how he could help his team win. And that's often misunderstood in, uh, in sort of uh, historical analysis of it. John Donaldson was going to go and he was going to play and he was going to be put in a position to help his team win always. And that's what was important. 60% of the gate could be had if uh, his team won more games. Uh, the, uh, as opposed to losing, you, you only get 40% of the gate. So the important part is the more money could be made putting John Donaldson in the best position to win. And he was an all-around guy. And so I don't think – I think that his legacy suffers because uh, he's not – the best pitcher in the Negro National League. But you also have to understand the Negro National League uh, played primarily Thursday to Sunday. Uh, all their games were during the weekend. Uh, and so it's important to understand that uh, for a player such as John Donaldson, you had, uh, there was other days. Uh, and they barnstormed all the time. And so if you had a game, let's just say they played in Detroit, uh, they barnstormed their way to Detroit uh, because that's how they made money. And so, and then the, the league games we played on Thursday to Sunday or holiday weekends or, you know, always at the uh, deference of 
how you got the baseball park, right? So if you went to town and you wanted to play in Detroit, uh, some you had to have open dates, right? And Negro League teams were always second to the white teams that were in the area, and so they would get uh, the the white teams would get the better dates. The white teams would get the uh, uh, you know the ability to advertise for it, right? You've seen in your research, you've seen schedules, right, where they'll show the whole month and they'll show everybody who's playing, right? Negro League teams had to wait until the white teams of their areas designated their time, and then they picked up the scraps from there. So that was always a problem. That's why the early iterations of the Negro National League don't have a team in New York, because those stadiums are never free. Right. Well, there was, yeah, and that that was a huge, uh, that was a part of it for sure. Undeniable part of that, no doubt. But the Negro National League, as it formed in 1920, uh, needed franchises and they needed stars. They needed people to be able to promote. They needed people to be able to, um, and players to be able to show that they were legitimate. John Donaldson was a legitimate major leaguer. Everybody knew that at the time um, and would have played all on any of the major league teams. Uh, but they just couldn't do that. It was segregation. And segregation caused uh, him to kind of reel into obscurity uh, because he can't be or is not um, included in, you know, major uh, biography uh, books and things that have come along for 100 years. And so it's important to understand, you ask, why is he not pitching? Well, he is pitching. Um, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah, he has a he has a noted record, at least on BaseballReference.com, of seven and six yeah. over those two seasons. Yeah, he doesn't have great records, but but let me tell you this: John Donaldson was playing every day. Um, he was uh, he had come off a decade of tremendous amount of innings pitched uh, in between his twentieth and thirtieth year. Um, in his he pitched so much. It, it, it's surprising. Many, many articles suggest why his arm hasn't just fallen off uh, <laughs> because he, he's doing and he's surviving and he's traveling throughout the United States. And in the conditions that he's playing in his, uh, the numbers are going to be what they are. I'm not so concerned about, and, and you know, that's not to also um, downplay the great pitchers that Kansas city monarch had. Um, and so my point is that John Donaldson can win more games playing center field and running around catching all the balls, playing good defense for these pitchers. He's going to do that. Um, and then just two years after the league starts, it's, it's starting to teeter. It's kind of like the top that spins and it's starting to wobble. Um, people aren't sure that this Negro National League is going to, is going to survive. Um, so that's when J.L. Wilkinson, the owner of the Kansas City Monarchs, takes John Donaldson away from the Monarchs and throws him back on the barnstorming tour uh, with younger players uh, to try and feed the Kansas City Monarch system. Meanwhile, he's cashing in on his famous name, uh, and they're, he's really buoying the Kansas City Monarchs fr- franchise financially uh, because he can go out on weekends and, and, and play all over the United States and send solid money back. One of the things about the Negro National League was that, depending on who you ask, between 5 and 15% of every game that was played, the money went to the office in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Um, right? So 85% of the money you get to keep if you split it with everyone else, right? And all these metrics, 
they're much more reliant on a day-to-day income mm, yeah. than a major league. You know, a major league team can um, have guaranteed newspaper coverage. <laughs> they can have, and, and then sooner or later they get radio coverage and sooner, or later, you know, there's certain things they can rely on. A barnstorming team has to make it every day and has to make it up every day and has to show you who they are every single day um, from town to town. And at that time, very isolated towns um, in terms of what, what people want to see with baseball. But the, the most important part to understand is John Donaldson's legacy suffers. Well, people say, well, Pete, why doesn't he play 15 years in the Negro National League? I mean, it was the greatest place you could play. It was the epitome of black baseball, right? Uh, yes and no. Uh, John Donaldson could make more money somewhere else. And he didn't need to do the uh, – the, the Negro National League thing, um, unlike any other player in the whole league itself, uh, he could go out and make more money playing uh, in the Midwest and, or uh, barnstorming than uh, that's a that's a uh, agency that John Donaldson afforded himself, and that cost his legacy. By 1924, he takes an offer of making two and a half times as much money as he would have made for the Kansas City Monarchs playing in central Minnesota on an on a integrated team. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a question of money. Uh, and John Donaldson had earning potential that Negro National Leaguers didn't have. And so that cost his legacy. But does that change the physical ability of somebody? It does not. Uh, we know John Donaldson's physical ability. We have film footage of him throwing the baseball we know um, what people said about him. Um, we know so much about him. Um, we know that his physical ability made him a major leaguer. It just wasn't recognized. And today we got to recognize that because uh, it's important to understand that, and, and it's important to state that. Uh, uh, Black baseball players were as great as any white baseball players in the history, ever since the history of the, the beginning of the sport. Uh, they just weren't recognized for that. But you can't tell me that they, John Donaldson was, uh, uh, he was a great baseball player and would have been great. But tragically, we have segregation and we need to learn more stories about him because he would have fast tracked it straight to the major leagues. Look what he has. He has left-handed power pitcher. I mean, you'd want that today. I mean, that doesn't yep. change. The game has not changed in, in, in that. Um, and so was John Donaldson uh, forgotten? I say yes. Was John Donaldson how – can, how can I constantly go around talking to people and have them say they've never heard of him before? It's, just, it's a strange thing in our national pastime that uh, someone could be as uh, kind of cast aside as John Donaldson was. And it's time to start resurrecting that, understanding what he did and how important he was to the game and how important he was to relations at that time. After a lifetime of experiencing and watching racial prejudice and segregation, Donaldson lived to see the day when Jackie Robinson integrated baseball in April 1947. Like many African-American players, who toiled in the relative obscurity of the playing fields outside the all-white world of Major League Baseball, Donaldson's exploits and achievements were lost and forgotten by most fans 
who grew more accustomed to seeing African Americans playing Major League Baseball. After his playing career ended, Donaldson broke a color barrier himself in 1949 by becoming the first African American scout in Major League Baseball when the Chicago White Sox put him on their payroll. Once Major League owners acknowledged the vast talent pool that existed within the African American community, Donaldson was seen as a natural bridge. Donaldson established his own territory on the campuses of black colleges, most notably Grambling College, looking for the next African-American phenom to send to the major leagues. On several occasions, he went to the Deep South, plucked an emerging black talent, and sent him to the Midwest to play for the minor league teams associated with the White Sox because Donaldson frequently knew the minor league managers personally from his time barnstorming, the players he signed knew that they would be treated well. On one such trip to the Deep South, Donaldson observed the talents of a young Willie Mays and recommended that the White Sox sign him to a contract. Unfortunately for Chicago fans, his superiors passed up this golden opportunity. One of the things that you talk about on the website, and I'm sure it's not as hard to research this kind of thing as it is, you know, his playing career was that he was the first African American to be named a scout for a major league club. What can you tell me about his career in that sphere? Oh, absolutely. Uh, let me tell you about John Donaldson's scouting career. South Chicago, where the Chicago White Sox are, he lives there. He'd been working for the Parks Department after he retired for uh, anywhere from 10 to 15 years. Uh, and he's around Chicago baseball. They know who he is. And so around 1948, there's a community. Uh, the community keeps asking, uh, right in the heart of the African-American community in South Chicago, are the Chicago White Sox. We need an African-American playing on the Chicago White Sox team. Jackie Robinson has shown that, uh, that the gate can be enhanced by um, having an African-American player. Plus, there's great African-American talent all over the place. Uh, the Chicago White Sox signed John Donaldson uh, June 22nd, 1949, um, to become the first full-time black scout. Now, baseball people, as they are, recommend people all the time. It didn't matter if you were black or white. Or it didn't matter. Um, so there are other players, such as Oscar Charleston, who um, recently in a book came out, said that he was the first black scout because he helped Branch Rickey sign Jackie Robinson. Wow, that. That's undeniable. He, he certainly did. But that didn't make him a scout. That didn't make him – that made him a reference. Right. He wasn't on the payroll. Right. That's not – they might have they, they gave him a check for his time. They may have, but probably not. Um, and there are people who have claimed that uh, uh, there have been other African-Americans who suggested other players. That may well be the case. But John Donaldson is known to be in the room as the first black scout in the room. And that's an important part, an important distinction, because uh, that had never happened before. Uh, and that's why John Donaldson is significant in terms of scouting. And in terms of who he was able to find, who he was able to find, we know that he, he, he followed Willie Mays. Uh, he brought a, a young Willie Mays right into the Chicago White Sox office, and they said, ah, well, I don't know. I see we still have a guy who plays out there, and we'll just keep him. And, and in hindsight, that is an incredibly short-sighted way to look at that when you consider 600 home runs. 
you know, Willie Mays. <laughs> did the same thing with Bernie Banks. They had opportunity. It's proven that they had opportunities to do that. But because of the quota system that was installed at that time, in terms of having to bring two um, black players to a team at a time, it was, they, they always had excuses for not signing the great players. So John Donaldson brought great players of that time uh, right to the Chicago White Sox. And finally, Bernie Banks is coming to Chicago to see John Donaldson and the Chicago Cubs take him away and sign him up and, and Buck O'Neill's in there and uh, all kinds of people trying to uh, bring Ernie Banks to the Chicago Cubs. When John Donaldson knew Ernie Banks and traveled with him and, and offered him to the Chicago White Sox. And for one reason or another, they kind of hesitated and uh, uh, the rest is kind of history. I mean, he goes to the North side and he becomes a hall of famer and he's Ernie Banks. And, uh, but John Donaldson had a clear shot at him. Chicago White Sox had a clear shot. They could have Ernie Banks and, and Willie Mays in the uh, starting lineup for years. <laughs> um, and they just didn't do that. Um, and it was tragic. Those opportunities were there for John Donaldson. He does sign um, Sam Hairston for the Chicago White Sox first thing. Bob Boyd. He does sign great players, but not the Hall of Famers that we are household names today. But he's in the mix. He starts a uh, pipeline through traditionally black colleges in the South, try and bring up players and have them start in college and then bring them along. He's dropping players in small town Minnesota to play in very minor leagues, um, bringing them up from the South to do that. He's trying to build the pipeline for the Chicago White Sox. And then finally, Ernie Banks comes around and, and he find, and Buck O'Neill says that, said that if you don't want Ernie Banks, I don't want your job. He said John Donaldson said that. And that's probably right. That might be a little more dramatic than it was. It doesn't really sound like the way he talked. But the, so if you don't want Ernie Banks, who do you want? And then and also at that time, the Chicago um, White Sox are changing ownership and management. Whenever there's a general manager change, the scouting staff is completely evaluated. And at that time, they were changing general managers. The Chicago White Sox were terrible at that time. They lost 100 <laughs> games many years in a row. So, I mean, it's a, it's a different deal, his scouting group, and that's an important barrier to have broken, and John Donaldson did that. Before we started this talk today, you mentioned something about the future of Negro League Baseball. What do you mean when you say stuff like that? Well, a lot of people think that since the Negro Leagues ended in the early 1960s, that all this stuff must be in a dusty book somewhere on the shelf. I don't think that that's right. And what the Donaldson Network and what I've been always trying to do and one of my mo main motivations is to show people that they can have an effect on the history and the future of how Negro League Baseball is perceived by people. John Donaldson was a great baseball player. He needs to be understood for the games he played in, the influence that he had, and many, many reasons. But the point is, is that they... People just assume that, well, the Negro Leagues ended in the 1960s. That's a long time ago, and that's grandpa's sport, not mine. But the fact is, uh, or great-grandpa's, I guess, at this point, I'm getting older, too. The um, fact is, is that you can go out and find this stuff. I've given a, shown a roadmap with the Donaldson Network about how to do this. My original idea was, Satchel Page said he struck out 10,000 guys and won 2,000 games. And that's what he said. And I thought to myself, you know, Satchel Page came through Minnesota and played uh, very close, near my hometown. They would have wrote about him in the newspaper. It's 19, late 30s, 40s, 50s. Surely everywhere Satchel Page went, someone wrote about it in the newspaper. Someone could figure out if he won 10,000 games or not. And there's, how, but how would you do that? Well, I've shown you a way to do that using John Donaldson as an example. 
Uh, now, is that something that someone wants to do? It's a, it certainly is a, a lifelong endeavor. But Satchel Page played in a lot of places, many of the same places John Dawson played in. But what's important to understand is this stuff isn't written down the way you would kind of assume it was, um, the way baseball history is. Uh, try and argue with somebody about the 1949 World Series. I mean, what do you do? You go to your webpage and you figure out what happened in that series, and, and now you can make your judgments. But the, I think the jury is still out on many black baseball players because you just don't know the data. You just don't understand where they were, what they were doing at that time. And so I look at John, not only John Donaldson, but many others potentially that could be re, relayed as significant baseball players uh, that really need to be uncovered. Uh, just relying merely on what people said about them or what has matriculated down through history is irresponsible. I think there's a lot more to be known about this, and I've shown that you can do that. And so I think the future of Negro League Baseball has a lot to do with our ability to go out and find it. Now, these guys had to go to some faraway places uh, and some difficult places to find and difficult research. It's not simple stuff. Um, but I can tell you that the stuff is out there and you got to just, someone has to be organized enough to go find it. And that's what we've been able to do for John Donaldson. And we're not done. Uh, there's, there's many, many more games to find. There's many, many more wins to find. Um, someone can do that. And that's what I mean by the future of research. It's just not dead in a book and we're going to reconjure it up. now. we're going to, uh, this stuff can be materially changed, uh, because historians have now have the ability to go find this stuff. And that's what I love to talk about because it's not dead and buried and it's not gone away. It's something that if you have the passion enough to do that, and if you have the ability to be able to see through all the distractions, uh, you could focus in on somebody and not only focus in on somebody, but focus in on somebody like my experience with John Dawson was. And one time about 10 years ago, I'm, was piling data and stuff, and I realized, look, this guy's not the same as everyone else. He's as good as anybody has ever talked about, and he needs to be thought of in that way. And so now he has more wins, more stri verified strikeouts than any pitcher in the history of the game, uh, segregated pitcher in the history of the game. It's important. I mean, how can we just miss him? And I, that's what I believe is the future of Negro League baseball research. John Donaldson was buried in an unmarked grave in suburban Chicago. He died in April of 1970, about six months after I was born. In 2004, the Negro League Baseball Grave Marker Project found his unmarked grave and through contributions from many sources, cobbled enough money together to be able to have a proper headstone installed in John Donaldson's grave. I had just written a chapter for a book called Swing for the Fences, Black Baseball, Minnesota, a full chapter devoted to John Donaldson himself. So they sent me an invitation. Come down. We want you to see the green grass turned to a stone monument, right? So we got in the car and we drove all the way to Chicago and we were standing around the grave site and we're looking down. And I said to the guy, some of the greatest historians in the world were there um, in terms of Negro League historians. And I said, does anybody really know who this is? I mean, that's a natural question that you say when you're looking down at a grave site. Mm. And they all kind of said no. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. I know a little bit about him. Surely there's somebody else who knows something. Uh, let's get it all together. And that's when the Donaldson Network started to be formed. It's important to understand that influential African-Americans in 1920s said John Donaldson was one of the greatest all-time 
Negro League baseball players. How do we measure John Wesley Donaldson? We cannot use the shorthand designation of Hall of Famer as Donaldson, despite his reputation and accomplishments, was not included among the 17 enshrinees inducted in 2006's special election. Examining the statistical record from surviving newspaper accounts, we see a dominating pitcher with more than 400 wins and more than 5,100 strikeouts. Research continues to add information providing statistical evidence of Donaldson's greatness. At best, however, these statistics provide a foundation on which to build our appreciation of Donaldson's life. Statistics can never serve as the true yardstick of a man. The fact that Donaldson's accomplishments were achieved on the barnstorming tour does not detract from his reputation. Virtually every baseball fan knows the legendary Satchel Paige and the tales of his barnstorming feats. Donaldson blazed the trail for Paige as he showcased his formidable talents in many of the same towns in which Paige would reprise Donaldson's performance as a headline-grabbing, barnstorming hurler. The documented opinions of Hall of Famers Wilkinson, McGraw, Lloyd, and Cobb reveal the regard in which they held Donaldson. Still, even his reputation as a ball player fails to demonstrate the full measure of the man. Donaldson achieved greatness in the face of unfair barriers imposed by society. The debate that Donaldson's performances were only possible against competition that fell short of major league standards would never exist but for the injustice of a system that established skin color as a prerequisite for access to the field. Even in the ballparks where Donaldson was allowed to play, prejudice and racial animus lay simmering beneath the surface. I am clean, morally and physically, Donaldson once said. I go to my church and contribute my share. I keep my body and mind clean, and yet, when I go out there to play baseball, it is not unusual to hear some fan cry out, Hit the dirty n***! That hurts, for I have no recourse. I am getting paid, I suppose, to take that. But why should fans become personal? If I act the part of a gentleman, am I not entitled to a little respect? Donaldson's character is revealed in his refusal to trade his heritage for professional glory. Rather than rejecting his race, Donaldson embraced it, refusing to advance his career to the major league stage at the cost of turning his back on his family. In a 1932 newspaper article, Donaldson proclaimed, quote, I am not ashamed of my color. There is no woman whom I love more than my mother. I am light enough so that baseball men told me before I became known that I could be passed off as a Cuban. One prominent baseball man, in fact, offered me a nice sum if I would go to Cuba, change my name, and let him take me into this country as a Cuban. It would have meant renouncing my family. One of the agreements was that I was never again to visit my mother or to have anything to do with colored people. I refused. Instead, Donaldson continued to pitch on the barnstorming circuit, a living embodiment of the words of Quincy Gilmore, who wrote in the Kansas City Call that no other enterprise has done more towards bringing the races to a better relationship 
with each other than baseball. For decades, John Wesley Donaldson demonstrated to everyone who watched him not only his skill with a baseball, but his character as a man, regardless of race, one diamond at a time. We're living in a time of reassessing American history, particularly with regard to racial and economic inequality. In the sports world, racism and intolerance from team owners, players, and fans are becoming unacceptable to a majority, even among the privileged. Heck, on the day production of this episode finished, July 13th, 2020, the announcement came that the Washington, D.C. NFL franchise would change its racial slur of a team nickname after 87 years. Positive steps are being taken to address ages-old injustice, but flipping through pages and noting simply how far we believe society has come is not enough. Only a thorough re-examination of history, even sports history, and an understanding of the past without present-day prejudices will do to make a better future. And why is history so important? John Wesley Donaldson, that's why. Donaldson was a man who refused to hide his identity despite the potential financial opportunities in doing so. A left-handed pitcher with GOAT-level skills who could have dominated Major League Baseball in the 1910s. In his lifetime, Donaldson was all too often faced with high-volume hate and ignorance which blinded people to his outstanding character and skills, not to mention the competitively disadvantageous unwritten rules of the 16 millionaires running big league ball clubs. Those forces win if we allow pioneers and goats like John Donaldson to be forgotten. And we are all the poorer for it. This has been Truly the Goats, an inclusive media production. A huge thank you to our guest, Peter Gorton, director of the Donaldson Network, for appearing on the show and for reaching to us in the first place on Twitter. And we encourage everyone to check out the Donaldson Network official website at johndonaldson.bravehost.com to learn more about this true baseball goat. Excerpts from One Diamond at a Time in this episode were read by Danny Solis. The full audio or text version is available on the Donaldson Network and Truly the Goats websites. Music in this episode includes an original arrangement of Take Me Out to the Ball Game by Bobby Howe and the song Once Upon a Time by Audio Binger is via freemusicarchive.org. The songs Take Me Out to the Ball Game, The Memphis Blues, and Anytime, Any Day, Anywhere are in the public domain. Extra materials, show notes, blog posts, and other related stuff on the greatest of all time are available on our website at trulythegoats.com. On Facebook and Twitter, find us at trulythegoats. For more inclusive medium podcasts and video production, see us at inclusivemedium.com. Next time on Truly the Goats, we'll look at baseball's next goat as part of considering the present and future of sports. I'm Oz Davis, thanking you for listening to Truly the Goats.
Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sports. HistoryNetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.